You're listening to Ghost Radio, Station 0.5. It's the devil in the dive, and up next is another rad episode of Bad Band, Great Song. Primacy and recency, two huge things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Well, listen, I mean, let's, get this, let's get this thing going. Let's get this thing going. Let's get this thing going. So I got a question for you, Jeremy. I don't know if you... Uh, how are you doing? Yeah, how are you doing? Also, I don't know. Do you remember in, a, in season one, episode four, P.O.D. Alive, when you said you thought P.O.D. stood for Puddle of Dirt? I, I do remember that. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad you do. I'm glad you do. I'm sure you do as well, folks at home. Jeremy, I have a question for you, and I'd like to know what your thoughts on this are. Yeah. Yeah, now, isn't a puddle of dirt merely mud? How about that? It it would be. Uh, <laughs> what? what? You have a rebuttal to this? No, no, I guess, I mean, yes, it is. But today we're not talking about a, a puddle of mud. Today we're talking about puddle of mud with two Ds. Oh, cool. <laughs> so that's a completely different. That extra thing. D does account for something. That, yeah, yeah, I don't yeah. know what it is in there. Yeah, yeah. It just now it makes it unrelated to dirt because <laughs> now mud is something. It's not talking about the mud we know. The dirt-related mud. Some strange foreign mud. Well, speaking of uh, other concepts that, well, hopefully we're going to address that in this show. One thing we're not going to address, which I said we would, so I lied to you folks at home, is oceans. We're not going to be talking about oceans at all in this episode. But we are going to be talking about cracks. Isn't that interesting? And how they're like and unlike threads. Mm, how about that? Mm. Well, anyway, hello, folks. Welcome to the podcast that will piss you off. This is Bad Band. Great song. <laughs> yep, I'm your host, Andrew Patrick Finelli, and with me is your other host of the show, Jeremy Cohen Jerry. How you done? How you been? The band we're focusing our critique on today is Puddle of Mud and their song, She Hates Me. Fucking hates me. La 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 la. Summer loving, having a blast. <laughs> ah, she hates me. Is the brash stupid? That was our worst. Our worst intro singing. Uh, that was, I think, our best intro. Uh, maybe. Point. Counterpoint. You see, isn't opinion a funny thing? How Teams. about that? Exactly. So she hates me. Is the brash st stupid? Cathartic mm -hmm. and anthemic fourth single off of Puddle of Mud's major label debut album, Come Clean. She Hates Me on paper and by the numbers is not quite Puddle of Mud's biggest song, Blurry. Blurry is, but She Hates Me has more gusto. And it's, it's definitely set closer material. And it's an undeniable anthem that unites the band's fans and even non-fans. I'm not totally sure where I fall here. <laughs> 
<laughs> Probably in the not fan tarot category, Joe. Yeah, I guess so. Honestly, all these years, I thought the song was by The Offspring. <laughs> like, really, really not going to lie. Every I time that. I hear it on the radio, I'm like, oh, that Offspring song again. It's the, it's the heavily processed, like, buzzsaw guitar tone for the chorus and, like, the, th- the, the thin, like, uh, thrashy... Tone in his voice, you know? And the la-la-la-las. Like, there's just, like, so much just, like... And it feels like a really old Offspring song, too. Oh, okay. See, that's the Offspring I prefer. For sure. For sure. Yeah, when you first brought the song, you know, to the the quote-unquote writer's room, I was like, like, oh, shit, this is... This is not... The offspring <laughs> puddle of mud with two D's. Like, oh, I really gotta. Uh, between puddle of dirt and thinking this was the offspring, I love where your head was in before <laughs> before working on this episode. Yeah, I'm coming in pretty blind. Here. Yeah, well, she hates me holds a number of distinctions. And one of those distinctions, though not one to tout, is that it's Puddle of Mud's last truly big single. It was the last single off of their massive debut album, and no other single since has come even close. And they released four more records after (laughs) Come Clean. So, you know, quick math. That's, you know, like 40 songs that... (laughs) (laughs) That was the most they did the math moment of the the show, yeah. That's a lot of fails. (laughs) Well, Puddle of Mud is essentially the story of one man, one deeply troubled man who has profound issues with accountability. I'm talking about lead singer, guitarist, and songwriter Wes Scantlin. Puddle of Mud has fans. They definitely have stands, but they also have fans. They touched the casuals. You bet. That sounds fucked. They reached out to the casuals. You better believe there are millions of people who have very passive and pleasant opinions of Puddle of Mud. Maybe they haven't kept up to date, but they sure do love Come Clean and that, you know, that famous song. Yeah, I feel like I see a Puddle of Mud shirt Mm -hmm. probably like once a month. And you know... (laughs) Right? Like about that. Hanging out in parking parking lots of 7-Elevens? Like, where are you? I mean, we're in New York City, dude. There's a lot of people There's a lot of people. You walk on the street, you see a lot of fucking weird fucking people. I know a lot of people feel that way about seeing me. (laughs) 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 Right? You know? So a puddle... You're you're rarer than a guy with a puddle of mud shirt. Thank you. I'd like to think so. (laughs) For sure. Anyway, we're going to piss a bunch of uh, those people off, you know? And, And these people would probably love to kill a couple of New York hipster douchebags like you and me, Jerry, actually. Uh, But we're going to piss them off because we're going to say that Puddle of Mud is a bad band. Absolutely terrible. (laughs) Yeah, and that's going to be our stance and we're sticking to it, man. But as always... I don't know if any of y'all believe me at this point, but we are not actually trying to convince you Puddle of Mud is bad. I don't think we need to convince you Puddle of Mud is bad. You probably already know that. So, no, no, no. We are here to challenge the skeptics to recognize the greatness of their song, She Hates Me. You really got your work cut out for you on this one, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm... I'm- Honestly surprised after listening to their discography that control isn't your favorite. <sighs> Especially with <laughs> lyrics like, I love the way you smack my ass. That song does reach out to me on a personal level, yes. But I think that, so you know what? I think in ways that song, we'll talk about the problematic nature of this song and how it is essentially just a one note, very reductive message of, you know, re-woman bad. But like that song, unfortunately in ways is like even more of that, even though it's, 
It's because he has, there's more going on to that song. This song is just so one note. Right, it's like, right, right. That song is, re- so it's, I couldn't, I can't love Control. I can't, just can't love Control. <laughs> okay, yeah. understandable. Which I guess is implying that I love this song. So let's get into that and find out about that. So we're going to examine Puddle of Mud and the song She Hates Me in detail to articulate how and why to make the case that though Puddle of Mud is a very, very bad band, she Hates Me is a great song, though not without its flaws and faults. I, I just hope we get to the bottom of why they spell mud with two Ds. <laughs> <laughs> That's really my goal for, the, for this episode. Wednesday, July 24th, 2013. Puddle of Mud lead singer Wes Scantlin was arrested. That would be what appears to be his sixth out of at least 14 arrests between 2002 and 2017. This sixth arrest on Wednesday, July 24th, 2013, involved Wes Scantlin and his neighbor, pop star Sasha Gradova. Scantlin was wielding a handheld buzzsaw and a sledgehammer. What the fuck? (laughs) (laughs) That's insane, but you you definitely know how to paint a scene here. Thank you, thank you. I thought Crazy Town started in a crazy way, but Wes Scanlon really takes things to a nuts level. (laughs) He does. Yeah. Anyway, (laughs) you're probably wondering how uh, he ended up in this situation. I sure am. Well, it all started back, most likely in 1993, even though that is debatable, most likely in 1993, in Kansas City, Missouri, Wesley Reed Scantlin, Jimmy Allen, Sean Salmon, and Kenny Burkett had started a band. In the October 25th to November 1st, 2001 issue of The Phoenix, Boston's alternative source, Scantlin told Sean Richardson, quote, Yeah, we had this rehearsal space in Kansas City that was right by the levee of the Missouri River. It was back when there was a lot of flooding going on in the Midwest. There was this huge puddle of mud outside of the space, and I just thought... Man, we might as well just call ourselves Puddle of Mud because that's exactly where we're at right now. Creativity is just flowing through these guys. <laughs> <laughs> he really just calls it like he sees it. Yeah. Yeah. Sees a puddle of mud, we are a puddle of mud. But right? I'm still confused as to the two Ds. How did <laughs> now that we know it is from a literal puddle of mud? Well, isn't that what the artist does? They abstract the literal. Uh, sure. Yeah. Mm, isn't that interesting? How about that, folks? Let us know what you think about that, folks. At Bad Bad Great Song on Instagram and Facebook. Don't go to Facebook unless you're an alt writer. Uh, and at uh, BBAGS Show on Twitter. Anyway, now what happened between 1993 and 2001 is debatable. In fact, the Wikipedia says the band started in 1991. And some interviews actually do state that. Some articles do state that, but then there's also a lot of bottom feeder websites that continue to prop up that story with no original source. But a March 11th, 2004 article on (laughs) Newstimes.com confirms Puddle of Mud started in 1993. There's also merch that confirms this. You can literally find a t-shirt that says Puddle of Mud established 1993. And by the way, NewTimes.com, fuck me if that doesn't sound like some sus-ass scam site, but it's apparently a Hearst publication and and a long-running source of Connecticut news. So what's up, dude? Are you going to start editing Wikipedia pages? (laughs) Like with sources and all the annotations and shit? Yeah, you know, no, and I know, and that's a long story for another time, maybe a Patreon bonus, but I think it might be hard for me to edit some articles these days. 
Back. Ah. Yeah, yeah. I may have I may have nefariously edited some articles when I was a younger man. Oh, you're blocked. I may be. I don't know. We'll get, not going to incriminate myself on the show. Nah. <clears throat> but still, what happens between 1993 and 2001 is debated to this day. Though, as we'll see soon enough, the truth of Puddle of Mud's early years falls firmly in between the two prominent stories. But first... Let's look at what we do know about Early Puddle of Mud. Let's do it. <laughs> the band began, most likely, in 1993. By perhaps May 1994, they released their debut EP titled Stuck. It was released via the very indie and very hard to pin down V&R Records, which appears to be based out of Kansas City, Missouri. So let's get this out of the way now. If you give... You really give Puddle of Mud a critical and thorough listen. This fact is undeniable. Wes Scantlin is heavily indebted to and influenced by Kurt Cobain and Lane Staley. We do not, we do not get <laughs> Puddle of Mud as it was and is without Nirvana and Alice of Chains. Without those two bands, whatever Wes Scantlin would do and call Puddle of Mud, it would be very, very different. And the offspring. Let's be real here. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> That's true. And maybe they would have just been an offspring clone without those other two bands. And what would they have been without the offspring then altogether with those other? Hmm, interesting things. Interesting things, indeed. Maybe they would have been a Pearl Jam ripoff. That would have been truly... That would have really sucked. Anyway, to be clear, Puddle of Mud would be a very different band without those other bands. And that is true from 1994's stock all the way up through 2019's Welcome to Galvania. But for those wondering, I'm going to say Stuck is a cool puddle of mud. It's really? The, I, it's the coolest they'd ever be. This is them trying to be alternative. Okay, I'll They're, give it to you. Do you know what I'm saying? I'm trying to look past my tastes and just assess things. <laughs> so there are glimpses of Scantlin's chuggy, middle-of-the-road, red state military wife, butt rock, balladry, and dollar store poetry on this stock EP. Don't get me wrong. Like Wes Scantlin is Wes Scantlin. There are certainly glimpses of that. But beyond those glimpses... This is them trying their best to be noisy and huh, abrasive. I guess they're trying, right? Failing, but trying. <laughs> Let me phrase it like this. Uh, maybe, maybe some of you music folks will understand this. Puddle of Mud is that band in your scene that's obviously doing another band's gimmick. And everyone in the scene gets that. And Scantlin is the type of guy in your scene who is basically his own worst enemy. He's insufferable. But he's still around. And the band still plays shows, and they still kind of rock, even though you wish they didn't. Every scene and every generation and every place is bands and, and guys like this. You're making me so curious who you think. <laughs> <laughs> the bands that, like, out of everyone that we know, who it is. I think the more accurate statement is that's probably how people viewed me, frankly. Wow. <laughs> Whoa! Wow, you just got a long wow out of me. Don't let anybody say I don't reflect. Anyway, <laughs> and Scantlin, speaking of reflecting, Scantlin truly can't get over himself, his ego, and his influences. That would certainly be true for Puddle of Mud's indie debut album. I am referring to 1997's Abrasive, released via the very small indie Hard Knocks Records, based out of Madison, Wisconsin. 
The Kirkland brand Kurt Cobain energy is instantly palpable. The album starts off with cock-rockified bleach sounds and eventually finds its way to in utero era Nirvana. You're really losing me with the Kurt <laughs> stuff here. And I'm not totally sure anyone should be striving for that pedophile steez anymore. What? You the, are the naked such babies. a fucking loser. <laughs> <laughs> it's for a everybody, joke. For it's everybody a joke. who doesn't get, uh, if you're not familiar with Bad Band, great song lore, Kurt, uh, Kurt, Jeremy hates Nirvana. But, uh, you know, if you are familiar with Bad Band, great song lore, you know that Jer Jeremy has a vendetta against Nirvana. And if you're unfamiliar with Kurt, uh, Kurt Cobain lore, he decided Jeez. to put a naked baby on his album cover. Jeez Louise. This is far too uh, current. I don't want this show to be so current. <laughs> I'm sorry. It was I couldn't help myself, dude. It was See, that, such we, we easy ammo. Here. This this oh, I'm not gonna touch on this at all. This is not, I love it. I can't this is not I can't touch I'm not gonna touch on this. I'm just pushing your buttons. You're not not pushing my buttons. I'll tell you that much right now. And I definitely just cannot comment on this. Enough people are. I'm having I, too much fun. Okay. By this point, folks, <laughs> by this point, somewhere in 1997, almost 1998, by this point, original lead guitarist Jimmy Allen had quit the band. What exactly happens next is sketchy. This is where what we know for a fact ends. But Puddle of Mud, for a fact, sure as hell falls apart. According to some outlets, the band left Scantlin. Some outlets suggest Scantlin broke up the band, and still, according to others, when Puddle of Mud was discovered, Scantlin was told that his current band couldn't ride the rocket to stardom with him. Whatever the reason, this was a fact. Puddle of Mud was done by 1999, two whole years before Wes Scantlin and a new group of guys would become rock stars. A November 6th, 2001 Rolling Stone article by Gavin Edwards cements what would become the most told version of Puddle of Mud's foray into fame. Quote, In 1999, after years of plugging away, Scantlin broke up the first version of Puddle of Mud and got ready to move to New Orleans, where he was planning to manage his then-girlfriend, a stripper. A friend dragged him to see the Family Values tour where Limp Bizkit were headlining. He did meet Durst's security guard, and gave him his last copy of Puddle of Mud's demo tape. How about that? Three weeks later, Scantlin was stunned to get a to get a call from Durst, who flew him out to Los Angeles, signed him to his flawless label, and hooked him up with his new bandmates. What a time to get connected to Fred Durst! What a time also. to get connected like, to Fred Durst! Exactly, it's like prime time for real. That bit of text would end with all the members of Puddle of Mud have been bouncing around the music industry for years. Which I think is no, uh, interesting to note. I'm actually surprised there's that much transparency in this article and they don't try to blur over the fact that the Fred Durst essentially boy-banded Puddle of Mud, which is fascinating, very interesting, very interesting. Yeah. So there's a lot to unpack here. We just glossed over a few things. So let's pull it back and slow it down. Flip it and reverse you it. You got it, Jerry. So, Scallon was going to manage his at-the-time girlfriend's stripper stripping career. I wasn't satisfied with just reading that. I wanted to know more. So I found an October 24th, 2019 Kerrang! article written by Misha Perlman. And in this article, Scanlon himself says, 
You know, I went to a concert with a fake backstage pass and a freaking demo tape from a puddle of mud fan <laughs> that lived in Kansas that mailed it to my house. Then I got it to Fred Durst security guard with a fake backstage pass and left town with a freaking super strip, a super stripper <laughs> that I was the roadie for and boyfriend. Then I was picking up her daughter in Mobile, Alabama and, and getting a page a page from Fred Durst and then talking to these guys and getting flown out to New Orleans to Los Angeles. Great. So the story is real. I love that so very much. But yeah, the other big story be being buried by me is Fred fucking Durst. A man of the ages. And, and I just... Getting a page... Getting a page from Fred Durst. Right, just so in case anyone's young <laughs> listening, we're talking about a pager... Not a piece of paper, like a, like a beeper. Just getting a text message that basically just said someone wants you to call them, yeah, more was, or less. It was just a phone number. Exactly, yeah. I guess eventually... I think eventually you got, like, name, yeah, you had, you, like, yeah, store yeah, contacts, you know? Like, but at first it was, like, you, you just called the phone number and then put in your phone number, and then the other person could see that you sent them your phone number. Wasn't technology just so fun back then? Well, the other thing to call out from this quote, from this Kerrang article, is that Scantlin himself is definitely also keeping the story up of, of how everything went. That he just connected with Fred Durst, three weeks later got a call, then was flown right out to Los Angeles. We're going to get to that in a bit. But first, first, let's talk about Durst. At the 1999 edition of the Family, Family Values Tour, Scantlin got Durst's demo via security guard. That's real, and it's frankly the stuff of legends and some bullshit that you see in a movie, and somehow worked. <laughs> some almost famous type shit. Like, I love the fake backstage pass also. I'm pretty good at sneaking into shows and venues in general. Like, I, I've done it plenty of times, but I haven't f printed out fake passes. I mean, this is 1999. You know, how many safeguards were there in places, especially for like a... A, 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 like a, a 1999 Family Values tour, like very early right. on, a tour basically put together, it was put together by Corn, you know? So it's not like right, right. Live Nation was in charge of this. Right. You know? But yes, to your point, that's still fucking crazy. A fake fucking crazy. VIP path. How did he get the, yeah, it's amazing. Well, we don't, it's amazing. We don't know. So it's something so, you see in a movie. Yeah. But anyway, by late 1999, Durst had his hands on a puddle of mud demo. Durst then contacted Scanlon and began a when all said and done year long process of rebuilding his band, getting a record made and catapulting them to rock stardom. We only know before unpacking the rest of that thing we just went over. Just gotta make this clear. We only know puddle of mud because of Fred Durst. And that isn't just because he discovered them. Durst rebuilt the band. It was just Scatlin. That is true. Uh, plus his drummer, Kenny Burkett, and some hired guns, which we'll talk about more in a bit. But it was essentially just Scatlin. Scatlin didn't have machinations for putting together a new group because he hadn't. He wasn't. He was, a, he was about to go become a roadie or manager for his girlfriend's stripping career, which is a lovely thing to do. It's a wonderful way to spend your time. But I'm just saying he clearly wasn't putting together a new puddle of mud. This was Durst steering the ship. Durst even directed the video for Blurry, Puddle of Mud's actual biggest song. So for real, there is no Puddle of Mud without Fred Durst. As the story goes, right? Durst got Scantlin out of New Orleans into Los Angeles, and it was time to put together a band. But let's pull back again. Why did he have to put a new band together? What's up with that? 
Well, as discussed, Rolling Stone seems to confirm that Scantlin broke the band up himself. He had no band at the time and was very quickly flown out to L.A. to start preparing for fame. Well, that's not quite true. The other big story is that Wes Scantlin ditched his bandmates to make a pig, which is reductive and a little bit too inclusive because that really only applies to one bandmate super specifically. There is some truth to that, though. Yeah, it definitely doesn't seem as though he pulled for them. Does not seem that way at all, though. No, no. Now, Puddle of Mud's relationship with the local Kansas City scene and the local periodical, The Pitch, is contentious, to say the least, and something very fun to pour over if you folks have the time and feel a little nerdy, specifically due to Wes Scantlin and how his success came about. This is something that is often underreported about Puddle of Mud in contemporary documentaries and biographies. <laughs> Because <laughs> there are. <laughs> but this, there, there is considerable drama between Wes Scantlin and the stalwarts of the Kansas City independent and underground music scenes. Scantlin is viewed as a pariah, a former member of the community who sold out his old towny bandmates for international stardom. I've got a feeling they're not wrong. <laughs> so this truth definitely falls somewhere close to their version of events. This drama is documented well in several articles by the pitch, which are so, so yummy to read, as well as the comments sections and letters, letters, because this is 2001, 2002, 2003, letters, actual letters sent to the pitch at the time. Wow. Yeah, right? Old technology. Scanlon was telling Rolling Stone that the band had broken up years before his big break while former bandmates and members of the scene were claiming Scantlin left his bandmates behind due to selfishness. Truthfully, if it was 1999 and Fred Durst was knocking at my door, I'd probably do just about anything he said. He was like, all right, like you got to ditch the band and go do this. I mean, I don't know. 1999, if you... you 1999 is the year for when Fred Durst comes knocking, you're just like, yep, absolutely yeah, sure. okay, dude. Got you. Yeah, no, Let man, for real. Yeah, it's Durst crazy. was in a powerful position then, and as we talked about, he d directed their video. He was directing. So that's, for folks who don't know, as Limp Bizkit kind of have faded into the background before them recently becoming superstars again, Durst has been an, an acclaimed director of music videos and 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 and, and other film works and com and commercial stuff. He's a legit director. He's a powerful person. I didn't know that. Yeah. And it all was really starting around this time. And this is around the time he started his own label, a subsidiary. Of get well, well, we'll get into all that. So, <clears throat> not only all of that, Scantlin would regularly talk about Puddle of Mud being a Kansas City band. This is another aspect of the beef between him and his, uh, his hometown folks. Pat Scanlon would talk about Puddle of Mud being a Kansas City band, when in fact, he was the only Kansas Cityan in the now famous Puddle of Mud 2.0. This claim clearly would add salt to the wounds and fuel to the fire. Two idioms in a row, how about that? Isn't that fun? When it comes to folks saying he sold out his hometown and bandmates, and in effect, his hometown. It's like all these NYC bands that say they're from New York and none of them are from New York. Exactly. <laughs> yep. Uh-huh. Exactly. No, I'm not going to say anything, but exactly. Yeah. Anyway. Me neither. <laughs> except what I just said. 
I love yes. you, Jeremy. One article from the pitch, believe it or not, actually, though, reveals what is most likely the truth between the two opposing stories. Six one, half dozen of the other. And one more for good luck. I'm a baker's dozen <laughs> kind yeah, of guy. The, the, the baker's paradox. Yeah, yeah, I'm a baker's <laughs> When everything's equal, except there's one left in the balance for the baker. The, the pitch is December 4th, 2004 article, The Prodigal Son, by Nathan Dinsdale, lays out the facts simply. Jimmy Allen, the band's original guitarist, quit around 97, 98. And doesn't seem to really pop up anywhere else for a decade. Not in, in really. In terms of music. He does like, come he back to like Puddle of Mud for a little bit. But yeah. like, yeah, you're right. Exactly. Uh, and he also get, well, you know, the, the band imploded after that, after Jimmy Allen left, the band imploded, meaning basically all that amounts to is the friendship and working relationship between bassist Sean Salmon and Wes Scantlin ended, and we don't really know why. But we all really know why <laughs> deep down. <laughs> well, Scantlin kept the band on life support with a revolving lineup of musicians, including Kenny Burkett, the original drummer. So this is where things start to get muddy. Two of four original bandmates were absolutely gone. Alan left of his own accord. Maybe Salmon did too. We don't really know. But Burkett, the band's original drummer, was still actively working with, Scant working with Scantlin. So keep that in mind. Scantlin gets his demo to Fred Durst. A demo that he had just been working on. This is not uh, stuck or abrasive. Just him demoing things. So then what happens after that? The story typically goes that Durst just whisked Scantlin out to LA and showed him the high life and got his career on track and told him to fire his band. That skips over some stuff. Before any of that, Durst sent A&R man Danny Wimmer to Kansas City to audition Puddle of Mud. But of course, there was no actual band. There was just Scantlin, Burkett, and some hired guns at this point. Not totally unreasonable. I mean, that happens. Not totally unreasonable. But the, the problem with hired guns, an audition was held. Scantlin, Burkett, and their hired out bassist and guitarist absolutely tanked the audition. They failed, and if we're to be trusted by sources, it's really, it was, it was, it was bad. <laughs> it was bad, and it was primarily the hired guns who just buckled under the pressure of major label scrutiny. Right. So, this is where the deception begins. But to be clear, it only affects Kenny Burkett, Puddle of Mud's original drummer. At least it only directly, directly affects Kenny Burkett. It definitely, it definitely indirectly affects Sean Salmon and, and Jimmy Allen, but we'll talk about that later. Interscope A&R man Danny Wimmer offered to take Scantlin and Burkett out to a fancy Olive Garden dinner to debrief and decompress after the botched audition. Nothing like bottomless breadsticks to calm, <laughs> to calm a band down. <laughs> Also, Olive Garden, I'll be DMing you for our Yo, Olive address. I actually am Italian, Olive Garden. Sponsor yes. us. Sponsor us. Sponsor Send us. us gift cards. Well, at this delightful Olive Garden dinner, Wimmer told Scantlin and Burkett, all is not lost. So the three agreed to meet at the studio the next day. Except something funny happened. Something strange happened between their Olive Garden <laughs> dinner and the next day. Something that Puddle of Mud drummer Kenny Burkett was not a part of. By the time Burkett arrived at the studio the next day, Interscope A&R man, Danny Wimmer, and Wes Scantlin were already on a plane out to L.A. Oh, shit. That is some next-level ghosting. See, that's actually getting ghosted. That's, that's, real, real that's ghosting. really getting ghosted. That's life-change ghosting, you like, know? oh, I'm on a plane. Right, for real. Burkett told The Pitch, quote, Apparently they put Wes on a plane to Los Angeles. I spent eight years of my life 
Eight years of my life helping Wes reach his dreams. All I had to do was be man enough to stand up and say, there's this one guy that has to come with me. But he couldn't do it. So fucking weak. Mm, how about that, right? Yeah, bummer. Now, here's another shot of truth. According to this pitch article, Durst's label and Interscope subsidiary, Flawless Records, made Scantlin an offer but said no to Kenny Burkett due to his drug use. So, yeah, regarding, regarding Burkett, Scantlin was indeed told his bandmate couldn't come along for the ride. Damn. Such a weak-ass move. It is, and a funny thing to consider. For the record, Burkett does own up to using drugs, but is adamant it would not have been a problem when weighed against the opportunity of his life. And it's hard to, hard not to believe the guy. I think he could have, eh. and also given Scantlin's own issues and with addiction, it's certainly ironic that this would prevent Burkett from being part Puddle of Mud 2.0. Which is honestly a better band name than just <laughs> Puddle of Mud. Puddle of Mud 2.0. At least it suggests something you want to know more. Like, why are they Right, 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 exactly. <laughs> Coming out the gate as a 2.0. Right, the lore is already suggested. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, now we're back to where we were. Wes Scanlon's in L.A., and Fred Durst is helping him rebuild his band. Andrew Miller, from The Pitch, reports in his 2001 article, First, he teamed up with Doug Ardito, a bassist originally from Concord, Massachusetts, who was working as an intern at Limp Bizkit's label Interscope. Quote, The guy can play guitar better than me, like Jimmy Page or something, and he's he's the bassist, man, marvels Scantlin. (laughs) Guitarist Paul Phillips of a band called Happy Hour, who hails from Durst's hometown of Jacksonville, Florida, was, quote, recommended by a friend. That left Homa, Louisiana-born drummer Greg Upchurch, who was chosen after an audition process. Quote, (laughs) we had to go through, like, 50 drummers in two days, Scantlin recalls. He was the guy in the end who was the bomb, man. (laughs) That two days of auditioning drummers had to be more of a pain in the ass than just flying the homie out. Right. Like, that seems obnoxious. (laughs) (laughs) So, in 2000, Puddle of Mud 2.0 entered the studio to record what would become the major label debut album, Come Clean. Come Clean was released August 28, 2001 by Flawless Records via Geffen, which was, of course, part of Interscope Geffen A&M Records, which is, of course, now part of the Universal Music Group family of labels. Isn't that wonderful? Don't start, dude. I'm already done. Oh, okay, good. <laughs> but just, isn't that wonderful, just how so few companies own so much? Isn't that lovely? It is. Wouldn't you just like to be part of a corporate family? Mm. So nice. Late stage capitalism, indeed. The album was produced by John Kurtzweg, who has an illustrious career. I couldn't even get that sentence out for real. His production talents have touched bands including Creed, Eagle Eye Cherry, and Godsmack. Wow. They were really just aggressively cranking out Yes, yes. Shit, aggressive music in the early 2000s. Aughts. Whatever you want. And another thing about Godsmack. Well, nothing about Alice in Chains, I should say. God's, that's where the Godsmack got their name. It's amazing how much great stuff produced such bad stuff. But that's a conversation for perhaps another time. Come Clean peaked at number nine on the Billboard 200. The album is estimated to have sold more than five million copies. However, it was absolutely certified triple platinum by the RIAA, confirming it has absolutely moved at least three million copies. What, the other two million were mail-in? 
You know, all jokes aside, and let's not dwell on this for too long, but I really, I've been, I've been digging, man, and it's hard to really figure out a solid one single answer, but it is funny how, why is it not triple, why is it not certified five times platinum by the RIAA, but that claim yeah. can still be made by the record company, that it's five, sold over five million. Right. Very interesting stuff in what actually is needed to go into you know, certification. Very strange stuff. It's a funny thing, but it is at least certified triple platinum while possibly... <laughs> the thing is, you will find reports in literally one sentence without explanation saying the record is sold over 5 million copies and it's certified triple platinum by the RIAA. Yeah, <laughs> like, that's very strange. It's like, what? Well, so I think that the... I think the RIAA wasn't counting digital sales... At one point, probably I, you know, something like that. I don't know if it was like two million sales in times of whatever. Wouldn't um, that be amazing? <laughs> yeah, they just like yeah. I I don't know. It's interesting. Well, that controversy and question aside, something that is not debatable is that the album was actually a worldwide international smash, which. Right. Fucking crazy. Come Clean made it onto weekly and year-end charts around the world. It's funny because I can tell you, even being around then, this is this is just this was something so uniquely white trash and American in puddle of mud. I, I just I had no idea they were so absolutely truly world famous. The album essentially dominated the white, more Western European countries, which now that I I say that, I guess I understand the overlap there and why. Yeah. <laughs> it was specifically popular in those countries, white Western European countries, a little closer to America than I guess other cultures, right? But anyway, with many bands that we go over, this sort of monumental success can actually be boiled down to one single, actually. And that'll especially, that especially uh, accounts for the next band that we're going to cover in episode eight, which I cannot wait for. But... That single that I'm talking about, which is uh, typically the thing that changes everything for a band, that single is typically the one we're doing an episode about, right? That's not the case here. Because honestly, Blurry blows <laughs> way worse than this song somehow. Yeah, it's a very... Man. Blurry is the kind of song that really shows the overlap between like aggressive white dude butt rock and just like chuggy middle of the road, like live, laugh, love, like overly sentimental... Yeah maudlin like you know comically melancholy because it, uh, shit because that that actually lacks any compelling intellectual depth or 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 a shade aspect to it that makes you like see it the sentimentality in a different light it, it blurry fucking sucks it's you know someone once said about sentimentality a theater instructor i once had sentimentality is like pissing yourself it's warm, comforting, and feels good at first and like a release, but eventually you realize you just You're pissed yourself. Covered in piss. Yeah, exactly. Sentimentality, folks. Take that. How about you tell that one to friends at a party? You just keep learning so many things that make you so difficult to talk for other people to talk to on this show. It's really a phenomenal thing. We're really doing amazing things for people here. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. Puddle of Mud were fixtures from the summer of 2001 through the summer of 2002 with no lag because they had four fucking singles that were huge. So we're going to go over that right now. Their first single hit big and so did the rest. Every single released from Come Clean was a smash success. And this is an, an amazing example of how long the selling cycle and therefore the shelf life of music was back then. Let's, let's look at this. July 17th, 2001, first single Control is released. August 28th, 2001, 
come clean. The album drops. April 23rd, 2002, third single, Drift and Die is released. That is how long Blurry sustained them for. Then, another four months later, roughly, August 13th, 2002, a full year after the album's release, the fourth and final single, She Hates Me, is dropped. Wow, that is an impressively long cycle, especially in today's terms. It I mean, it's over really a is. year for a record. It really is. And again, it's their last... A lot of bands, their last single, if they had four or five singles on an album, that last one was kind of like a weaker note. This was, this is, She Hates Me is right behind Blurry. She Hates right. Me is currently, as we record, it's their number one, it's not, but not by number of plays, but it's their number one Spotify stream track. Right. It, it, she hates as <laughs> she hates me would go on to become Puddle of Mud's true anthem. It's it's in ways they're Rocket Queen or Paradise City, a guaranteed barn burner set closer. Just one problem. She hates me as a co-write credit, belonging to farm former guitarist Jimmy Allen. Yes, some and farmer. <laughs> Former guitarist Jimmy Allen and Farmer. <laughs> Thank you for including that. That's an important detail. I feel like farming really makes a man humble, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Especially Jimmy Allen. <laughs> oh, yes. And folks, Somehow She Hates Me is a song that took at least two people to write. I, I mean, listen, I, I, I think the song is great. I, I'm, I'm here, that's what I'm here to talk about, but not due to its complexity. But luckily for Scantlin... This wouldn't be an issue. Jimmy Allen was rightfully com compensated via royalties for the song as he helped write. A very rare, positive, and just moment in the music industry. Always get those writing credits. Always get yeah, those writing credits, gotta man. get those writing yeah. credits. Figure out splits the second you walk into the studio. You gotta own your IP, man. As the story goes, Alan was moved to write the song after a fiery breakup with his girlfriend. <laughs> this is kind of funny. She was considerably angry, probably for good reasons, and Alan wanted to, Alan wanted to capture her anger. <laughs> so the song is very basic and very simple. It's notably quite similar to Summer Nights from Greece, which debuted in 1971. Uh, and actually, Puddle of Mud would do uh, uh, medallies where they would play this song and uh, Summer Nights back to back which is a, based on the content of the songs, too. It is kind of like a how it started versus how it, how it going or how it ended right. sort of thing <laughs> to go from Summer Nights into She Hates Me. <laughs> but, 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 but there's another song. There's another song. It's also quite similar to folks. And that's a Suicidal Tendencies song called I Saw Your Mommy, a song that came out in 1983 on their debut album. something some fans in some forums have discussed. And though I'm not a fan, I'm saying the same thing. Yo, why do these songs sound so similar? Are you really not a fan of the, of the Suicidal Tendency song? It's not that I'm not a fan. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a, 
I don't know. It's, if it's a cool punk fit. song. Yeah, it's just like a cool punk song, but like it sounds incredibly similar. And it was, you know. And is that alone years. preventing you from liking it? Well, no, no, no. Just the puddle of mud, you know, she hates me is 20 years later. Yeah, I'm asking if you like the Suicidal Tendencies song. Though. Yeah, it's all right. Okay, all right. I I kind of thought you would have fucked with it. But anyway, anyway, moving on, moving on. Let's talk about this song for a bit. Let's do a little bit of a technical analysis while we tell the story. Because that's how I wrote today's episode for some reason. Now, this kind of chord progression is so fundamental, it's basic. The only thing more simple would be just a straight up one, four, five chord progression. Which this basically is, but with the two thrown in there. Now, for those who don't understand what I mean with all the, the, that shit, no, this isn't numerology. Those numbers pertain to a major key chord progression. That chord progression is constructed by chords, which we can address by numbers, one, four, five, one, four, two, five, whatever, due to what order the note, right, they are named for, what, what order the note the chord is named for appears in the major scale. So in a G major scale, the G is the first note, so it's the one in a one, four, five chord progression. C is the fourth note, so the C chord is the four in that one, four, five chord progression, and the D, <laughs> the D is the fifth note in that <laughs> major scale. Cold joke, dude. <laughs> Solo, kids. Um, yeah, right. The D is the fifth note in that major scale, so we can identify the the D chord as the five in the one, four, five chord progression when, when it's in the key of G major. A one, four, five progression can be in any key. It's the blues. It's a Ramones song. You've heard it a million and seven, possibly a million and eight times. This progression in these songs, this is it's it's kind of the same thing with one extra chord, the two in in whatever key you're playing it. I love when you start talking <laughs> music theory. <laughs> Well, <laughs> thanks, baby. What I'm about to say pertains to both Suicidal Tendencies song and Puddle of Muds. The guitar and vocals are doing the most basic version of the most basic strategy imaginable for this super basic chord progression. For both songs, the melody is excruciatingly simple and minimal, and it follows the chord progression tightly. The same can be said for the lead guitars. Now, did Puddle of Mud copy Suicidal Tendencies? Maybe, but it's actually just as probable that they both on their own, totally independently of each other, did the same exact thing because what they did was so one plus one that anybody could have kind of done it. In fact, you may have also written this same song, One Night Stoned, uh, with a guitar in your hands, you know, fucking around while watching TV yourself. In terms of sophistication, both songs are figuratively one note, we're definitely figuratively, not literally, but figuratively one note reductions of Grease of Summer Nights. So, yeah, nobody's going to be coming after anybody here. There's no real IP to fight over. That's how basic this is. So it's almost, it's an interesting thing to think about. Not something worth arguing about. Yeah, well, unless you're that one dude that decided to sue Ed Sheeran. <laughs> and and he won, which was such right. a such a bummer. For songwriters, that was not a good... Or you could be like Elvis Costello with Olivia Rodrigo and just be like, that's rock and roll, baby. That's, yeah, that's rock and roll. That's how we write songs, man. That's how we write songs, eh? Yeah. I don't even like Costello's music that much, man, but he's a cool fucking dude, you know what I'm saying? I anyway. Know. I know what you're saying. <laughs> the magnitude of Come Clean cannot be overstated. Every single released eventually reached the top three of at least one chart. In fact, the second, third, and fourth singles all reached number one on the U.S. mainstream rock chart. No other album of theirs would have a roster, roster of singles as huge. Oh, 
and the WWE would also use control. <sighs> I probably did not listen to the lyrics. Control as the theme for 2001 Survivor Series, which is frankly the last time WWE remotely understood mainstream culture that was currently happening in mainstream culture. Minus a very brief stint with Bad Bunny about a year or so ago. Uh, and that's a happy accident and Bad Bunny just being bigger than God. The WWE doesn't, and, and also being a huge wrestling fan, but the WWE doesn't know what the general public finds fucking cool. But moving on. This, so I guess it's probably an off-air conversation, but you were recently mentioning how woke the, like, quote-unquote woke yeah. the WWE fan well, wrestling, wrestling fans in general. Not just WWE, wrestling fans in general. So do you think it, there's, a, there's a chance of, of seeing them move in a kind of more 2021 direction, where like kind of matching the fan base since it's such a large part of it? Or the, are they going to adjust or they're just going to like hold steady in there. Wrestling in general has WWE has begrudgingly and slowly and incrementally at best. All right. Yeah. It's, it's a weird thing to see, but that is definitely a conversation for yeah. off air or perhaps another kind of episode. Yeah. Ooh. I'm kind of so curious. We'll, yeah. get into it. well, following the release of come clean puddle of mud went on a European tour with Godsmack and the Deftones. Smack. They also ascended to join the ranks of performing bands for the 2001 family value tour, thus closing some sort of loop. Now, something we've glossed over here, amidst his band's rising success, Wes Gallen had been arrested. On March 10th, 2002, he and his fiance Michelle Rubin were both arrested for investigation of domestic violence and taken to the Ventura County Jail in Fillmore, California. Neither were charged. For perspective, this happened just one month and change before third single Drift and Die was released on April 23rd, 2002. Oof, sounds like a fun relationship. I'm sure it was. This would be far from the end of Scantlin's troubles with the law, by the way, folks. But they wouldn't become worse until the band Star began to decline. I don't think stars decline. Like, <laughs> <laughs> stars, like, fade away. They, lo <laughs> they lose their glimmer. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for the Neil deGrasse Tyson moment of the show. That was good. That was very important. I like that. <laughs> we, I like that we're no, we got to communicate facts on this show, man. Yeah, it's important. Yeah. Thank you for keeping me grounded. Yeah, yeah. Stars don't decline. So, <laughs> for the interest of brevity and also impact, we're going to save Scantlin's arrest for very near the end, and we're going to go through it in one shot. And frankly, frankly, due to band and activity, evaporating relevance, and the frequency, consistency, and, and concentration of his, event, uh, of his arrests, we can appropriately and chronologically address them in pretty much all, just one shot, while having nothing else to report on. So it works. I'm pumped. Let's it's do it. It's going to be crazy. But first, this brings us to 2003. Puddle of Mud had already been working on their follow-up sophomore album. The album was produced, once again, by John Kurtzweg. If it ain't broke, right? You know, but... Don't fix it. <laughs> based on Come Clean, the formula definitely wasn't broken, but key components of the formula were missing. Namely, Jimmy Allen. As addressed, Allen had left the band around 1997. Come Clean, released in 2001. It uses a number of songs that Allen helped write. These tracks are Drift and Die, She Hates Me, and even Blurry, which won Pop Song of the Year from ASCAP, uh, the American Society of Composers, Authors, and Publishers, for those who don't know. Hmm, kind of started to sound like maybe Wes wasn't the uh, brains of the operation over here, huh? Very funny how that goes, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> maybe a little really Matt Sharp, Rivers Cuomo going, I'm yeah, not going to get into that one. No. Something's missing here. 
I do like Matt Sharp, but that's a conversation for a totally another thing. Anyway, at some point during the recording of Life on Display, Durst and Scantlin had an argument that would have rather undesirable ripple effects. In the October 2003 edition of Canada's Chart Magazine, Scanlon publicly lashed out at Durst for the first time. Whoa. Due to his argument with Durst, which I assume had not been smoothed over by that point, Scanlon began to become riled up by media, constantly asking about his relationship with Durst and giving Durst the due credit for breaking the band. And during this interview with Chart Magazine, Scanlon broke. He said, he doesn't write, he doesn't write our songs. He doesn't produce our songs. He doesn't do anything for us. He doesn't do our videos anymore. He didn't do anything for this band. Wow. Uh, <sighs> I mean, hey, it's, it's phrasing, man. It's phrasing. But anyway, Scanlon would go on to say, probably unprovoked, too, at that, <laughs> quote, I don't know what he's doing. I, I don't know what the guy's like. All I know is, like, he's, like, Mr. Hollywood guy, Mr. Celebrity. Like, I don't hang out with anybody except Hollywood celebrities. Every single fucking interview I ever fucking done, I get asked about that fucking guy. I don't, know, I, I don't have anything against him, but I haven't talked to the guy in a fucking year and a half. And for me to do interviews all the time and be asked about this certain individual, man, people thinks he writes music with me or something. He does not do that. I just don't get it. We have nothing in common. He doesn't even call us. He has his assistant call us to congratulate us on our record. Yeah, that's how pathetic he is. Shade. <laughs> right. Hey, but, 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 but don't worry, folks. Things have since been patched up between the two. Although they definitely, they're not hanging out, but they're cool. Things are okay between Durst and Scantlin. Life on Display was finally released on November 25th, 2003. The album did not do well. It did not even reach platinum status. So safe to say a severe disappointment when compared to its predecessor come clean being certified triple platinum, though Life on Display was eventually certified gold in America. I actually am surprised the album didn't do well. First single, Away From Me, kind of rocks, whether you like it or not. It doesn't rock, and I don't like it. I, I'm going to say that you just don't like it, but it does rock, and those are two different things, man. I'm not saying it's good. I'm not saying it's great, but like... And even though it wasn't that big of a song, it was big enough. You gotta, you gotta look at it some sort of way, man. But hey, that's fine. That's fine. That's fine. We're not here to talk about that song. But frankly, also, a lot had changed between 2001 and 2003. The post-grunge strand of music that was created by record label Desire was becoming sort of a joke alongside new metal, which is an unfair lumping together, by the way, because new metal can be pretty awesome, as Deftones inarguably proves. The broadly referred to garage rock and post-punk revival of the early 2000s, heralded most prominently by bands like the White Stripes and the Strokes, had deeply affected what sort of rock music was included in the average rock fan's daily diet. This is when bands like Three Doors Down and Nickelback were becoming less of the mainstream and more of a... Mm, you know, very specific sort of thing. I'm talking, of course, about my favorite genre. Red state, military wife, thin blue line, loving butt rock. It's a thing. It's real. It sounds like sappy yet angry white men in their mid-30s to late 40s, and it, it, it looks like them, too. Complete with, with just overly ornate blue jeans and open dress shirts with, like, graphic prints on them and affliction-style fancy t-shirts and lots of aggressive, chunky silver jewelry. And uh, you, you can put the picture together yourself, folks. Again, life on display was seen as a letdown by executives. 
Around this time, drummer Greg Upchurch left Puddle of Mud to join Three Doors Down. So uh, <laughs> something I'm sure we're going to talk about eventually. Mm. Cracks. You know what's funny about cracks? They're different from threads. I could tell you that much. <laughs> well, well, you know what I think is funny about cracks? It's the way they form. It's also what they do. Much like threads move as they weave and connect, cracks also travel as they splinter and destruct. I guess they're kind of similar, sure. All right. Same but different. Different but same. Same but different. Yes, and. Much, and. Yes, and. And much like how we can follow one thread through a whole story, often connecting other threads, we can follow a single crack as it gets worse and leads to others. Especially when it comes to butt rock. <laughs> There's one very significant crack with butt, butt rock. rock. Yeah. Yes. On Sun and for everybody, for people who don't know, because I don't explain it in this, I'm just butt rock is a retroactive meme joke genre the internet basically invented to refer to the types of bands that appear on like those rock stations that had ads with like. 97, 7.7, nothing but rock. And then would play... Sunday, Sunday, Sunday. Nothing but rock. And then would play Creed and Puddle of Mud and Nickelback. And and Ted Nugent was classic rock for them. You know, that type of shit. But anyway, anyway, anyway. <clears throat> but rock. But rock. On Sunday, February 22nd, 2004, the good folks of Toledo, Ohio, saw destruction and a vision of the future. In an event that could have easily been in Doncaster, England on March 22nd, 2016, fans in attendance saw Scantlin's band desert him just four songs into their set. Confused and distraught, fans stood still as Scantlin harassed the paying concert goers who were there to see him. Sounds like a real fun guy. <laughs> really? Very Gigi Allen-esque confrontational. Really makes you yeah. question the artist-audience relationship. Yes. Mm. Mm, yes, isn't that interesting? Mm. As MTV.com reports on February 23rd, 2004. MTV. MTV. Kurt Loader, Daddy Loader here reporting for MTV News. No, he's gone. he was gone by this point. According to concert goers, Scantlin was, by his own admission to the crowd, my own too fucked up to perform. Still, he remained on stage for half an hour after the band's departure, just shouting insults and profanity at the audience and singing songs that he seemed to make up as he went along. Now, lovely. After incurring the wrath of the crowd, which hurled flotsam and profanity toward the stage, Scanlon headed back to his dressing room, where he was arrested by Toledo police for disorderly conduct intoxication, according to The Blade, a local periodical. Charges of criminal mischief and misconduct involving a public transportation system were reportedly added when Scantlin spit in the Toledo police cruiser en route to his booking. All three charges are misdemeanors. Scantlin was released on a cash bond of $150. That pays to be a white boy from the Midwest when you're in Toledo, Ohio, fucking everything up for everybody else. Anyway, and is scheduled to be arraigned in Toledo Municipal Court on Tuesday. Cracks. Threads. Mm. Puddle of Mud wouldn't release new music till 2007. Between 2003 and then, Puddle of Mud mostly played shows and parties and, yeah, cracks. And maybe a little crack, too. <laughs> well, on September 24th, 2007, Scantlin and his band were visiting Graceland. During their guided tour, Scantlin decided to just jump in the pool, which is not allowed, though he was permanently banned from Graceland and... 
I don't see this as a big deal, but in context of everything else that he would start to be doing from this point on, yeah, it's not good. It's not even like it's a cool pool. <laughs> no. Like I, I had to look it up. I was like, oh shit! Like maybe there's a reason. As 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 you guys know, if you've been listening to the pod, I love water parks. So I hear pool. I'm like, all right. Like how do we? We gotta sit. maybe I maybe I would have jumped into that pool too. But if it would, it's I'd be jumping into way cooler off limits pools. Uh, based on the level of research you put into water parks and stuff, uh, yeah. you would be jumping. You would not be jumping into such a pathetic pool. No, no, it's a pathetic pool. Exactly. And, and for those of you who are new to the show and unfamiliar with Bad Bang Great Song Lord, Jeremy puts an extensive amount of research and work into water parks. He's I very fucks with them. very caring with water parks. But anyway. It's true. I wish they loved me as much <laughs> as I love them. <laughs> you know what, Jeremy? I think they do. I think they do love you. But anyway, sure so. another thing worth noting. When you review old interviews with Scantlin from this period, man, it's really very clear he was fucking unwell. And I mean, whacked out of his fucking mind, making lewd verbal sexual advances at female producers during during interviews, just making testicle-based jokes impulsively. <laughs> like, it's it's weird. He acts Relatable. weird. And <laughs> yeah, I mean, testicle you know, jokes. You know. I, I, well, anyway, it's weird. He acts weird and unwell during this time. Oh, and yes, and yes, by the way, Puddle of Mud's next record was released just a week after this incident at Graceland, by the way, folks, leading to those more cynical among us to assert this pool thing was all just a PR stunt. Before there were prank videos, there's this dude jumping into the Graceland pool. <laughs> well, on October 9th, 2007, Puddle of Mud's third album, Famous, was released. The album was produced by a whole team, including Wes Gantlin and led by Howard Benson. Benson has an extensive, an extensive career. For my money, his best work is My Chemical Romance's Free Cheers for Sweet Revenge. And even I'd he, like my money back. <laughs> well, even a fellow like you, Jerry, who probably isn't going to be happy with that statement, you're going to probably be more of a fan of that band than the other bands we're about to say that he touched with his production talents. These are the bands under Howard Benson, Benson's production skills. P.O.D., The All-American Rejects, Hoobastank, Flyleaf, Daughtry, Seether, Three Days Grace, Santana, Adam Lambert, and Kelly Clarkson. Wow, you're you're totally right. What yeah. a terrible yeah. collection of artists. Isn't that bad, man? It's bad. It would yeah. also make one of the worst playlists of all time. <laughs> smooth, Speaking of, folks. Smooth and to the reason. <laughs> Well, speaking of folks, look for Bad Bad Great Song on Spotify, not only the podcast itself, but the profile where you can find episode and season specific playlists. Oh, yeah. The title track, Famous, was the lead single, despite the opportunity here to offer us an interesting take on fame and the music machine he was part of. We're given a one-note ditty that has essentially the same faux, critical, pretend, provocative message of Nick Nickelback's rock star, which is <laughs> famous, came out of the gate, debuting all right at number 27 on the U.S. Billboard 200, but the album hasn't even gone gold, something the previous album was able to do. More like almost famous, am I right? Wow. That... That was incredible. It's worth noting by now, Greg Upchurch was replaced on drums by Ryan Yurden, and guitarist Paul Phillips had also departed, being replaced by Christian Stone, which has got to be a fake name, but anyway, leading to a sort of 
Huddle Mud 2.1? I don't know. This starts getting crazy after this point with members, to be honest. This period would be comparatively calm for Puddle and Mud. They'd go on tour with Hinder and Papa Roach, which sounds terrible. They'd have more music licensed out by the WWE and UFC for events and video games. You better not even be thinking about having Papa Roach as an episode. <laughs> Infest is definitely better than Come Clean and released the same year. <laughs> I don't know, man. We might be cutting my life into pizzas. Uh, so, you know what I'm uh, you're kidding me, dude. That riff is sick. That, that, that song is so good. And uh, But is Papa Roach a good band? Yes. Oh, my God. I mean, okay, maybe they suck This is the, the guy who hates Nirvana. This is the guy who hates Nirvana. He is, ed- oh, my God, Folks, you, I, Jeremy, I'm not editing this out of the show at all. <laughs> you are going, oh, I love this. Oh. Well, this, this isn't about Papa Roach right now. Let's keep moving. Oh, oh, good recovery. Good recovery. Well, anyway, tragedy, much like tragedy was just around the corner for you there, Jerry. Tragedy was just <laughs> around the corner for Puddle of Mud. On June 1st, 2008, a brutal and destructive fire broke out in Universal Studios. The true ramifications of the fire were kept under wraps. At the time, the damage was reported as only affecting archives of film and TV shows. Uh Uh-huh. For those of you who heard episode one, that may sound very familiar. I'm, of course, talking about the unparalleled destruction of generations worth of priceless original recordings of music. I'm talking about the 2008 Universal Studio fire. The fire that destroyed Semisonic's masters of feeling strangely fine. The fire, this fire, also, this fire, this fire also destroyed Puddle of Mud masters. Now, how about that? Threads in our own fucking show. Exactly. In 2009, version 2.1 guitarist Christian Stone amicably amicably parted ways with Puddle of Mud. He was replaced by second-gen Puddle of Mud guitarist Paul Phillips. The band then began work on their fourth album. It was produced by Brian Howes. Howes has a pedigree in butt rock. However, his work with Puddle of Mud was his first true high-profile gig. Before then, the biggest acts Howes had worked with were Hinder and Christian shithead band Skillet. Total shithead. Awful. Terrible. Yeah, I definitely prefer my bands not to uh, compare a Grammy speech to Hitler speeches. They're all over They're the place. Terrible fucking yeah, bad man. guys. I don't. They, they don't even have a great song, so we can't even actually cover them. But whatever. Anyway, maybe we'll just have a show one day called Bad. Bad, bad band. Bad music. Bad we should have a show called Bad, bad Music. Well, we should just have an episode just called Bad Bands and we just list them. Bad we don't even discuss them. It's just like us reading names. Patreon special right there when we start a Patreon, folks. Now you know to look for it. Hinder. Uh, ha, 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 ha. Skillet. On December 8th, 2009, Puddle of Mud released their fourth album. Lord, I hate this fucking album title. Volume 4, Songs in the Key of Love and Hate. How many keys of love and hate does it take to make an octave? <laughs> I don't feel equipped to answer that. And it depends where you stand. And yes, this album title canonizes butt rock as chuggy. Make no mistake about it, folks. Butt rock has its own version of live, laugh, love energy. Some real triple L shit right there. Uh, by the way, all four albums so far... All of them were released via Durst's Flawless Records, but this would be the last. I really doubt Fred Durst was feeling too good about that investment <laughs> at this point. Things definitely stopped paying off very quick with that. Yeah. yeah. This album has sold, I think, 
over 100,000 copies? You counted? <laughs> yeah. Well, let's get some perspective here, folks. Their debut album went triple platinum. Their second album went gold. Their third album almost got close to being gold, which is four, 500,000 copies. Their fourth album has sold, quote, more than 100,000 copies. That's not the trajectory you want. They Benjamin Button. They Benjamin Button. <laughs> <laughs> Benjamin Button. Dave Benjamin Button as a band. Oh man. Well, speaking of plans not going well, in 2010 the band released the rare non-album single, something I wish kind of we saw more of because I like that. Well, we do see that a lot from artists outside of the rock music genre. But anyway, the song was meant for Team USA to use in the 2010 Winter Olympics. But good old puddle mud, mm, they missed the deadline. So yeah, the song. Came out, but not in its intended way. Olympic Let Down, Shook Up the World, was released on February 10th, 2010. Band should really be an Olympic sport. <laughs> just I mean, saying. It's like. just as artificial and contrived of a competition. I'm not going to get into that. The Olympics are a waste of fucking time and f everybody's juicing and it's whatever. Anyway. But anyway. By now, longtime bassist Doug Ardito had left the band. He was replaced by Damien Starkey, who was a vocalist prior for the band's Burn Season and Society Red. A best of album. <laughs> yeah, this is insane. A best of album. <laughs> They're grabbing onto it. I mean, a puddle of mud best of album. <laughs> what yeah. the fuck? A best of album with. <laughs> This is a funny concept. A best of album for Puddle of Mud was released on November 2nd, 2010 via Geffen. That is, uh, this album, it's as unimportant as it sounds. In fact, it's less of a deal than I'm making it right now. This greatest hits. Puddle of Mud's greatest hits. Wow. Amazing. Honestly, um... This time that I'm spending mildly tripping out over this, it, this is a disproportionate and in, 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 inappropriately large reaction to something so insignificant. This album came out. Um, it is an album that was released. And speaking, by the way, about albums that were released, on August 30th, 2011, Puddle of Mud released a very on-brand for the genre frustratingly spelled album called Rediscovered, which is capital R-E colon open parentheses disc, D-I-S-C close parentheses othered Rediscovered. It's a covers album. <laughs> Can't believe I'm even giving it this much time. It was released via Arms Division, which is Puddle of Mud's own record label. Marking this as oh, mm, mm, the first non-major Puddle of Mud release since 1997's Abrasive Demo LP, which means that's right, folks. Puddle of Mud is now officially an indie band, and they still are. So maybe that explains the name then, Rediscovered, you know, because you discover indie bands and they were already famous. There you go. So since they weren't famous anymore, you had the opportunity to rediscover them. How did I like they're this? they're on an Thank indie you, again. Yeah, yeah, you. you get me. You got me. Thank you. I see this, this. I love this. You are. Thank you, Jeremy. Anyway, November 20th. I mean, it's terribly. It's, it's fr very frustratingly spelled. There's no it's way awful. to describe it. It's horrible. It's horrible to read. It's horrible to to say. 
It is. It's bad. Horrible to be discussing. So let's move on. Horrible to discover. November 2011. November 2011. This was a rough month for Scantlin, and alongside declining sales and relevance, this must have helped push Scantlin further and further down the path he was already on. In November 2011, he would both file for divorce and lose his guitarist Paul Phillips, though Doug Ardito had rejoined the band as bassist. But Ryan Yurden was now replaced on drums by Shannon Boone, and not to, not to be confused with Shannon Hoon and Blind Melon, by the way, he was dead by this point. But anyway, I have definitely lost count, and I'm not giving you all a Puddle of Mud 2.0, 2.1, This shit's a meme, and it's just ridiculous. I don't know who's in Puddle of Mud anymore at this point. I think now it's pud- the Puddle, puddle of Mud <laughs> SE Pro. <laughs> SE Pro! That's exactly what it is. That's, that's, very that's where we are in the in the, yeah. in the iteration so far. Good point. Yeah. So if there, by the way, if there appears to be a narrative forming here, folks. There is one, and it's simple. Wes Scantlin is fucking hard to be in a band with. Okay. Uh, speaking about hard times, Daddy. That's a pro wrestling reference, Jeremy. Anyway, December 2011, Scantlin. <laughs> Dusty Rhodes, but another time. Anyway, De- December 2011, Scantlin was fingered by the IRS for non-payment of back taxes. Yes, fingered. Somewhere in the vicinity of $60,000. Now, before we move on, let me just say, we're about to get to the fun time, folks. Let me, let me just say, other than the, uh, this one, the second, rather, non-album single, Piece of the Action, in 2014, other than that, there will be no more new Puddle of Mud releases between 2011 and 2019. A 10-year break is reasonable. Absolutely. Yeah, you know bands can always come back with their biggest and best hits after a decade. It happens. Didn't happen with them. We'll get to that later. But yes, absolutely. But 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 folks, here we go. Scantlin's troubles with the law begin in earnest. Now, I'd like to sh- shout out uh, Louder Sound right now, a website, Louder Sound. That website has compiled all of Scantlin's troubles with the law, even uh, including things that aren't outright arrests. Just minus one airport incident in 2017 that happened after the Louder Sound article was published. Thanks, Louder. The only website that still reports <laughs> on hair metal. <laughs> they keep it real, man. They keep it yeah. real. Oh, let's get into this, folks. In January 2012, Scantlin was pulled over by police in Culver City, California for a minor traffic violation. After showing signs of intoxication, the officer searched his car and found cocaine. He was also charged with driving without a license and being under the influence of a controlled substance. Scantlin avoided a five-year jail sentence by agreeing to attend drug counseling. Decent. Cops may have also been puddle of mud fans. Something Wes has talked about inter- in interviews benefiting him, which is just so gross. April 4th, 2012, Scantlin is charged with cocaine possession. Sick. September 4th, 2012, Scantlin is arrested for public intoxication on a flight. He is going to have a thing with planes, folks. It's funny. On a flight to LA, Scantlin got into a verbal fight with a flight attendant, which is, uh, God, what a jackass. The plane had to make an emergency landing in Austin, Texas, where Scantlin was prop- promptly arrested. An airport security su- uh, a security source told TMZ that the singer was, quote, upset because the flight crew wouldn't sell him booze. Like, a flight God. is the worst and dumbest place to get into an altercation. It's also like, post 9-11. Right, like, yeah. And you land and they're waiting for you. It's like, what are you doing? He's such a jerk off. You're in a tin can in the sky. When you hit the ground, what do you think is going to happen? He wasn't thinking that's the thing. But anyway, May 7th, 2013, Scanlon is arrested for outstanding warrants. 2013, 
It was off to a chill start, but the ghost of 2012 would soon come to fuck that up because on May 7th, 2013, Scantlin was hit with two outstanding warrants. One for driving with a suspended license and one connected to his previous cocaine arrest. He was let go on an $11,176 bail. This is going to get expensive, huh? <laughs> yeah. It's just, yeah. It's just six days later, May 13th, 2013, He's arrested for domestic abuse, which is not funny. Oh my god, six! Or this is going to be a fucking list. It's already we're off the rails, six man. Days late. Okay. TMZ reported that police were called to a Hollywood address after someone said, "Quote: Scantlin shook his ex-wife and then tried to drag her arm by the arm of her shirt." The front man was described as "quote very mouthy" when officers arrived on the scene and arrested him. How about that? July 24th, 2013. And this brings us to where we began. Scantlin is arrested for vandalism with a handheld buzzsaw. So wait, was there no wood on the scene? Like he was straight up walking around with a fucking power saw as a weapon? There was some wood on the scene. Not exactly his scene, but that was his assertion. So let's, let's get into it. Let's get into it. You see, on this day, Scantlin woke up and chose fucking insanity and violence. He began essentially attacking his neighbor, Sasha Gradiva's patio with the equipped buzzsaw and sledgehammer he had. Scantlin was eventually arrested. He was later released, and TMZ was, of course, on the scene of his release, and asked him why he had done this. His answer, well, my neighbor vandalized my house, so I had to take action. Okay. (laughs) Spoiler, folks. (laughs) This isn't true. Gradiva bought the house with the, quote, vandalizing patio in question already added on to the house. Yes, that's right. You're, You're understanding right. West Scantlin is claiming a patio that is part of the neighboring home was actively vandalizing his home and that it was Gradiva's fault who bought the home that way. Isn't that fun? Isn't it just great having neighbors? That's don't, you, nuts. don't you love that? It's also worth noting that Gradiva claims this is at least around the 10th time up, in, up at that point that Scantlin had harassed her and taken aggressive actions against her. Gradiva made all this clear to The Hollywood Reporter on July 25th, 2003. So, like the sociopath that he is, Scantlin saw that, and he called The Hollywood Reporter up to give them his side of the story in an article that ran the very next day. And his story amounted to, uh, you know, that patio encroaches on my property, therefore it's my patio, and I'm remodeling my property to get rid of the patio on my property. I kid you not, that is his reasoning. And he plays dumb and even suggests Gradiva has no idea the patio is encroaching and therefore his. So he may be, he may and can be on her patio and destroy her patio because it's not her patio, it's his patio vandalizing his property against his will. And he even makes it clear that he has nothing against her. Of course, he's leaving out to The Hollywood Reporter the month's worth of harassment that Gradiva regularly reported to the police, which... You know, add some context to the whole thing. Cracks. Cracks. And probably, as you said, crack. I mean, definitely alcohol, but this guy was hitting some other shit too, man. He was definitely paranoid, and uh, we're going to get in, uh, it gets so much worse and stupider. Scantlin, on January 5th, 2014, is sued by American Express for once again non-payment of a debt. Imagine that, being sued by American Express. 
April 16th, 2014, the Meltdowns return on stage in Dallas. During the show, Scantlin threw a microphone and beer into the crowd. Some fans said he appeared to be lip syncing as well. Some people really <laughs> don't know the right way to throw a beer in a crowd. It's like really a situational thing. You know, there's clearly like a right time at a show where you're like, okay, that beers go up. <laughs> we need an episode where you just discuss the finer points of chucking beer. Anyway, to be clear, but with the lip syncing issues, this is not an accusation. This is a fucking fact. There is video evidence and you can find it on YouTube. There's videos of Wes Scantlin with his mouth shut, arms stretched out. And vocals still coming through the speaker. It's magician. It's insane. Magician, right. Isn't magic just a fascinating thing? How does that shit work? Other times, <laughs> I understood the reference. Other times in this same performance, he'll slip up and actually start vocalizing with his mouth wide open, except there's no audio of him wailing at all coming out of the speakers because his mic is out. And a lot of this is done. This, a lot of this is, this is during the era when, when Scantlin would be sat on a chair or a stool, not even playing guitar, just sometimes singing, sometimes lip syncing. This was a dark time to see the puddle live. This was bad. Sounds horrible. <laughs> it doesn't sound enjoyable. Not at all. January 16th, 2015, Scantlin is arrested at the Denver International Airport. And again, by the way, this is, this is the relevant puddle of new mud news. I'm not just... It's actually not just a literary device to slam all these arrests together. This is really the most re true way to report all these events, and he's not doing anything with the band during this time. Except now around this time in 2015, he'll start start to begin working on the album that will be released in 2019. But anyway, this Denver International Airport incident, this is a bizarre one. Scanlon can be seen on security cam, standing up, riding on the baggage carousel, he then ended up in a just just stand just standing there like riding the baggage carousel, and then he ended up in a restricted area again. By the way, this is post nine eleven. This is this is not okay in post nine eleven airports, especially in America. But he was bailed out later that night. He certainly had some good friends that were always bailing him out. Certainly did. April second, twenty fifteen, another onstage meltdown. During a live performance in Scottsdale, Arizona, Scantlin smashed up his guitar, headphones, and part of his drummer's kit. Anyway, April 15th, 2015, he was once again arrested and charged for disorderly conduct. He was uh, fucking around at Mitchell International Airport, and although the sheriff would not go into the charges of his details, he definitely did enough to get arrested. He really fucking hates airports, huh? It's, it's, it's pretty phenomenal, man. Oh, well. Anyway, June 20th, 2015, Puddle of Mud get booed off stage, and they delete their Facebook account. This is interesting. A gig at an indoor speedway in Versailles, Ohio. Ohio's a bad place, a cursed place for Puddle of Mud. Well, this gig didn't go so well. Some fans said the singer was drunk, sat down, unquote, a number of times during the show, and appeared to be miming the songs. That's lip syncing, folks. The band's official Facebook page was so bombarded that they later deleted it after the concert. That's amazing. Isn't it, though? But that's not all. That deleted Facebook page was actually Hacker Man taken over by a band called the Black Heart Saints uh, in some very Hacker Man type shit. The Black Heart Saints changed the name of the Facebook page to check out this band instead. 
Puddle of Mud, however, did eventually get their Facebook page back. Good for them. July 26th, 2015, Scantlin is arrested and charged with a DUI in Minnesota. On this day, Scantlin led police on a fucking 100-mile-per-hour high-speed chase. He was charged with a fucking DUI and fleeing police in a motor vehicle. He was heavily intoxicated and had difficulty speaking. Yeah, that's fucking wild. All this stuff is really, like, not dangerous as much as it's just, like, insanely shitty behavior. It is, and it's shitty that he gets off with such a sl- just slaps on the wrist. Totally, but now with 100-mile-an-hour fucking police chases, it's really reaching another level. No, he's a piece of shit. He like, really he, is. D- DUIs, driving fucked up, doing all this stuff is... This is not okay. This is not just like some dude sitting in his basement and getting high and fucking his life up. That is like you were going to... We'll talk more about it. Anyway, August 5th, 2015, he was arrested once again for driving under the influence. This time in South Dakota, he was speeding and holding some pot. He was released on $500 bail and even performed with his band that night. Something I'm sure would not have happened in 2015 in South Dakota had he not been a white boy and also the lead singer of Puddle of Mud. Yeah, well, Puddle of Mud is basically what I think of when I think of South Dakota. It makes total sense. <laughs> well said. December 20th. We love you good folks of uh, uh, South Dakota. I was about to say good oh, folks yeah, of Puddle sorry, of Mud. Right. Yeah, we love you the good folks of Puddle of Mud, South Dakota. <laughs> That's what we do on this show is just shit on a whole state and expect people to listen. (laughs) Yeah, we're punk rock, man. I guess so. December 26th, 2015, Scantlin is arrested for possession of a controlled substance. Again. There's more car issues. Scantlin had an expired registration. The police were checking up after. Then police discovered a controlled substance in his car. He was, of course, released on $51,000 bail that day. I should be adding all this up. This is fucking crazy. There's a lot of patterns in these cracks. And another... Issue with vandalism, January 10th, 2016. He's arrested for vandalizing property. This one is very sad, however. Scanlon was arrested for breaking into an old property of his that had been repossessed, and he was also charged with destroying items inside. He was charged with felony vandalism. Uh, Yeah, that's pretty sad. I hope he got what he wanted out of the house. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Still! Haven't found anyway. January thirty. That's <laughs> January twenty third. January thirtieth, twenty sixteen. Uh, another Ohio meltdown. What the fuck? Man? During a gig in Marietta, Ohio, the troubled frontman paused a song to accuse a fan of stealing his home. He then left the stage. What? That's a puddle of mud show, baby. March 9th, 2016. And people said Guns N' Roses was bad. But anyway, March 9th, 2016. Scantlin is arrested after a two-hour standoff with 30 LAPD officers. The New York Daily News reports, quote, assault rifle-wielding officers reportedly encircled puddle of mud frontman Wes Scantlin's home during a dramatic two-hour standoff that ended in yet another arrest for the oft-jailed singer. Cops responded to a call about a car burglary. This is going to be something that recurs again. A car burglary on the She Hates Me singer's Los Angeles driveway, only to find Scantlin dashing into his home. Strange sight. Basically, Weird. officers confused wanted Scantlin to come out of his home. He refused to. Very reasonable. This is when the standoff began. And why Daily News continues, the blurry singer was arrested March 9th on a felony charge and released on $50,000 bails, jail records show. For real, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars of bail money at this point. And it ain't even over yet. It's, it's wild. Insane. Well, March 22nd, 2016, something we referenced earlier. 
the Doncaster debacle. During a show in Doncaster, England, Scantlin was left on stage by his band after a shirtless and blind drunk Scantlin had another meltdown. Scantlin was sat on a chair for the performance, the entirety of the performance, it seems, and he just stayed there. Uh, he did some poor karaoke into his mic before things were eventually totally cut off. And again, you, you, some sad footage you can find on YouTube. Oh, yeah, April 30th, 2016. Scantlin is arrested for skipping a court date. <laughs> Scantlin was arrested following a show in Hermosa Beach, California. His skipped court date was for breaking into his repossessed property. That's so crazy. Like playing a show also right after you skip a court date. Like you're a famous band and you're like, okay, yeah, I'm going to still show up to the venue. Where everybody, knows, this, where everybody yeah. knows I'm going to be there. And if the fucking police department has fucking half a brain, they'll know where to find me. He really didn't think through. He really didn't get it. And speaking of not getting it, here's something crazy. August 23rd, 2016. He builds a fake bomb to deter car thieves, and he gets the street evacuated. Fucking what? A what? Gatlin alarmed fucking everyone around him when what? he was seen building. I don't even know if he's building a fake bomb. Like I can just yeah, imagine you- like like a guitar pedal and like black and blue and red and green right. wires into like a board beneath it. You know, and a battery attached to it. <laughs> So, so, oh so his neighbors saw him building and attempting to install a fake bomb into his car as he's being led away by cops. He can be overheard in the video saying how he was trying to deter the thieves in his life. Did, did this ever get backed up? Were there yeah, people no. trying to rob him? No. no, this is just mental break shit. But he will later on in life vaguely refer, refer to his ex-wife and other potential Potentially just women who who try to take shit from take him. shit from him, keep him down, ruin his life. He seems to vaguely he blames a lot of folks other than him, and he never directly addresses the thieves he claims were actively in his life, stealing his car and stealing his home. Like he accused a concert goer of stealing his home, <laughs> stealing his house. Like, like yo, what you the took my house. Fuck. Well, yeah, that's weird. This brings us all to Scantlin's final arrest date. On what appears to be Sunday, September 10th, 2017, Scantlin tried to board a plane with a fucking BB gun. Idiot. And this was at LAX. His bail was set at $850,000. This would be his at least 14th arrest between 2002 and 2017. Okay. Well, now we're. Now we're well over a million dollars. Without question. Bail money. Yeah, I mean, this really jumps. This is close enough. Holy shit. Well, and mercifully, this brings us to the end of Puddle of Mud Story. For now, that is a threat, folks. On September 13th, 2019, they released their fifth and newest album, Welcome to Galvania, produced by Cameron Webb. The album is named for the Galvanic response, which is Goosebumps. Not the book series. I'm referring to the skin and hair follicle phenomenon that occurs with humans. It's very complex, but that's what it can be boiled down to. It's goosebumps when something excites you. And it's a concept that Scantlin's father introduced to him. And clearly, Scantlin believes it's an appropriate way to address his music. Yeah, that gives me the bad kind of goosebumps <laughs> feeling. <laughs> that Gary Glitter bad touch kind of feeling. Yeah, yeah, you're not really yeah. like, yeah. Mm. Ooh. yeah. Anyway, I'm yeah. I'm not going to comment further on this, but uh, regarding Welcome to Galvania, uh, you know, it, uh, it came out. 
another one of those albums came out came out in 2019 and uh album did about as well as you can imagine also of note scanlon exposed just how poor of a talent he actually is and why he's been lip-syncing for so long when he attempted to cover nirvana's about a girl this song is compelling because cobain wrote his attempt at you know pithy early Beatles super simplistic love songs and the performance is very very crude it features Cobain straining his vocals and pushing himself out of his comfortable range it's something ugly to juxtapose against the sweet simplicity of the song but ugly in the right way and it works because Cobain can handle that Scantlin cannot he doesn't have the vocal ease that Cobain has whether you like his voice or not so we just hear Scantlin stressing this there's a delicate dance that makes the song compelling and that delicate dance exposes Scantlin for the unexceptional performer that he is for the lack of vocal ease that he has and for how the only way he could even thought to get to those notes were by straining and constricting his voice hurting himself further and making the performance even worse than it had he could have just sang it in a lower fucking register this performance anyway was for Sirius XM in 2019 but it blew up as a meme in 2020 it, I personally think it, it's maybe their greatest song. It definitely brought me more joy to watch and listen than any of their other videos. Are, are you weird? Are, which, what do you mean? Like the actual original yeah, song in Nirvana? No, no, or are you talking their, about this and Puddle of Mud? No, this and Puddle of Mud. I think it's their greatest. <laughs> it's the greatest music they released. Was You're fucking cover. crazy maniac. It's so fun. It's such a funny, hilarious thing. It also happens to be my favorite. A v- version of a Kurt Cobain song. Okay, anyway. now. All ah. right. All right. Let's get into the critical reaction, commercial impact, chart success, and fan response. Let's do it. Critical reaction. Come Clean is not a well-reviewed album. <laughs> and, she hates, and she hates me as an equally and fervently maligned song by critics. Though it is very worth noting that like Blurry, She Hates Me was recognized by ASCAP. She Hates Me won the 2004 ASCAP Pop Music Award. Commercial impact. Well, <clears throat> She Hates Me, along with Come Clean's roster of four monster singles, pushed the album to being certified triple platinum by the RIAA. That's at least three million copies. And some reports, again, indicate that the album has sold closer to five million copies and perhaps even more. We really got to figure that shit out. Like, how does, how does that work? We'll figure it out. We'll, Absolutely. We'll, fucking we'll, do. we'll explain that eventually. <laughs> yeah. You uh, guys don't have to look that up. We'll look we'll it, get up that. We'll get it up for you. you. We'll do that for you. <sighs> Chart success. Chart. Okay. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, all right, let's do this. It's time to fucking chart all over the place. And I have some rhymes prepared. I hope you're ready. I can't wait for this. So, the song hit number 30 on the U.S. Adult Top 40. Heart. Number 13 on the Billboard Hot 100. Art. Number 7 on the U.S. Mainstream Top 40. Cart. Number 2 on the U.S. Alternative Airplay. Bart. And number 1 on the U.S. Mainstream Rock. Fart. That was very good, Jeremy. I'm surprised by those rhymes. That was good. I didn't I, realize how many rhymes rhymed with chart. I didn't either, but we've said that <laughs> word too much. Yeah, that I, I was like, I'm just going to say other words. I appreciate you upping the word diversity for that segment. Yeah. Fan response. Well, this song is a <laughs> definite set closer, and it's their only song other than Blurry to have sold over 500 copies itself. 500,000 copies. 500,000, thank you, 500,000 copies. So it's very safe to say that fans love this song. Uh, Uniting people through shared negative experiences is kind of powerful. And 
don't know. Everyone can relate to realizing that somebody out there hates you. Especially angsty white boys from 2001. <laughs> Especially them. Uh, let's get into segment three and let's let's do the thing. So what makes this band bad? Lots and lots and lots of things. Oh, man. I'm going to go off here and I, I'm going to do something that I don't usually do. And I'm just going to attack this issue from a seemingly qualitative point of view. So when you're a songwriter, um, the quality of your writing comes down to the quality of your thought. When you're a writer, when you're a writer, the quality of your writing comes down to the quality of your thoughts. Your thoughts are reflections and indications of who you are and what you're capable of. And I'd also like to just add in there just really quickly in your ability to then articulate those thoughts, the quality of that level of ability. These are the things that, that, that define a writer as a good writer. Right. Well, just to be clear, you mean the quality of one's like ability to think and put that thought on paper rather than the actual quality of their thoughts. Exactly, yeah. But anyway, Scanlon has bad thoughts all around. He has a history of addiction and alcoholism, which that alone is not what make that doesn't make him that does not make him a bad person. No, for sure not. Right, exactly. I want to be clear about that. But what makes him a bad person is, regardless of those issues, he has hurt other people. He has abused women. Yeah, well, that definitely makes him bad. It definitely does. And he has been arrested for domestic abuse. That's real, okay? Yeah. And who knows what wasn't reported. This has happened more than once for him. But something else that has happened more than once, DUIs. Multiple DUIs, sometimes just days apart, he could have killed countless people, including himself. He's very lucky, but let's be clear, that's not a high or drunken lapse in judgment. Maybe once, maybe twice. Beyond that, and Scantlin has way beyond that, and again, days apart, that is a fatally selfish and wrong behavior. It is bad. To make that choice over and over again is bad. There is something questionable about your moral fiber and your decision-making there. Yeah, there's no question about that. I just just to bring it, you know, down even further and make this a, a serious moment, I think it's a good place to mm -hmm. say here. There's definitely resources, lots of resources, at least in the USA, for people who have experienced abuse or are going yes, through absolutely. a tough time with addiction. So reach out if you're needed. Not trying to be all PSA here, but I feel like it's just worth worth mentioning. No, thank you for that, Jerry. I appreciate that. Yeah. But so what we just went over was one type of bad thought, right? He's a bad dude and that he has bad thoughts when he's like, I'm just going to keep fucking DUIing it. But then when it comes to his songs and his opportunity to reflect on those bad things in a good way with quality thoughts and quality articulation and quality introspection, <laughs> that's not there. <laughs> When he has the opportunity to be a better person and discuss his sobriety and his troubles, Wes blames all of his troubles on other people. In a disgusting and vile Kerrang! article published October 24th, 2019 by Misha Perlman, Misha Perlman details uh, Wes Scantlin's incessant blaming and, and lack of accountability. <laughs> when he's asked to talk about his new album and the 10 years that transpired between the last release, Scantlin immediately starts placing blame on other people, saying that there are people out there who conspire against him to keep him down. Keep in mind, this is sober West Scantlin making these accusations. And when Perlman asks him, who are these people and why do they want to do this to you? Scantlin replies, he dodges the question and then eventually replies, 
it really boils down to basically one cliched catchphrase. Hell hath no fury. Oh, oh man. There's no way this guy's it's over it. with this guy, too. There's going to be... It's going to come back. It's going to come back. There's going to be more with this guy. So check it out, folks. This is what... You don't, you don't know the saying, and I hope you don't, because... But the saying is, hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. It's a bit of, I'm not here to unpack that statement and its problems, but whatever, and how it's used in history. But that's, but how it's being used here, folks? His litany of problems, is, according to Wes Scantlin, his litany of problems can be boiled down to women and their unparalleled scorn that hell can't even compete with. Wes Scantlin says it was all other people's faults, primarily women, presumably his ex-wife. That's it. His 14 some odd arrests, including DUIs and domestic abuse and destroying his neighbor's property and bringing BB guns into airports and making and affixing a fake bomb to his car. Yeah, hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. Sure, dude. Sure. Yeah, well, that's fucking wild. I'm fucking mad now, too. Just that's holy crazy. shit, Wes Scantlin. Like, fuck you, dude, man. Yeah. Not since Sonny Sandoval, man, but fuck you right where you breathe, man. Fuck you. The buzzsaw, dude. And of course, in interviews, when he's asked how he got sober, he won't even take credit. Maybe just, you know, say some bullshit like it's lots of hard work and focus. No, he gives credit for his sobriety to God. So let's go over this. It's everyone else's fault that he is such a troubled past, past, and it's God's doing that has led him to sobriety. Oh, yeah. I love that help from God. We really see this thread through fucking assholes too much, we man. cover in this show. Too much. It's like, oh, God. <laughs> exactly right. Oh, God. Oh, right. God. Okay. Yay. Moving on. Well. That explains that. I know, folks, We this is all, I'm just getting so ad hominem right now, and I'm just attacking the man, but this is the point that I'm trying to bring home. Wes Scantlin lacks accountability in every fucking way. You need accountability to be a great fucking writer. You cannot be a selfish, despicable person and be a great writer unless you also then have the clarity to accurately portray that character or portray that character and that experience in a compelling way that teaches the person who's not that how to understand that person. And I argue if you can do that, then you're not actually the genuine article of a fucking bad person who lacks accountability. Wes Scantlin lacks accountability in every fucking way. Wes Scantlin is stupid and bad. He lacks introspection and brutal honesty when it comes to himself. He lacks empathy and awareness when it comes to other people. Writ large, Wes Scantlin lacks fucking understanding. He has such, such, such serious and terminal issues understanding himself and other people. Just how could he have any hope of being a good songwriter? Totally. What kind of great lyrical content uh, can you get from a guy like that? Once again, as we'll talk about, the song's greatness, just like our last episode, has nothing to do with the lyrical content. But, but beyond all this, Scantlin is also a bad fucking singer. This becomes more and more clear the older he gets and the weaker his voice gets. There are no two ways around this one. Listen, you may very well enjoy his voice, and that's fine, but Scantlin is a very bad singer. From a technical standpoint, he has tension in his throat whenever he sings. It is not effortless for him. 
that is a hallmark of bad technique. The lack of effort. You do not want effort in singing. I mean, you want to sing, you want to work and sing and put your heart into it, but you don't want there to be tension and and, and forced effort in producing a noise because then that means you're hurting yourself. There's a difference between a good singer who has a relaxed delivery and clear tone who chooses to scream and someone who has to strain to use their voice. Those are two different things. Scanlon is someone who needs to strain to create the sound that he's creating. He is bad. So, yeah, that's, that's why I'm focusing so heavily on the quality of the songwriting, which frankly, I'll admit, discussing quality is... It's difficult, but let's be clear, this isn't fucking Rush, Van Helen, or Dream Theater. You know, nobody's Steve Vai or Joe Satriani in this group. Not that I like their music, because they're all phenomenal players. So, like, nobody's listening to Puddle of Mud for the musicianship. This is a band people come to uh, for their songs. So Which is somehow more surprising. Right. It is. But so then we have to talk about him as a songwriter and the quality of these songs. Again, it's not the musicianship. And I'm sorry if you love these songs, but the fact of the matter is, as a songwriter, Scantlin fails, man. Scantlin only succeeds in a, as a songwriter in a worldview where Trump was a, as a successful president. That's a statement. Hold on to it. I stand by it. And I, I'm not saying that awareness under, and understanding alone makes a good songwriter, but you need it. I, Seth Binzer is plenty raw, real, and self-aware these days, right? Andrew's talking about Shifty from Crazy Town, <laughs> if for some reason you didn't listen to the last episode. Thank you, Jerry. Yeah, I well, feel like most people know him as Shifty. They, <laughs> Mr. Shellshock, yeah. Well, listen, he has a humble nature and humility that Wes Scantlin most likely never have, that's for sure. But clearly being so aware can't just make you a great songwriter. You need more, but awareness is definitely part of it. Yeah, Shifty definitely seems to be one of the more self-aware musicians. He is. He's like very open and aware. He it's is, really interesting. But he, his heart, his heart is open, but that, yes, that is the yeah, last we episode. We already talked about this. <laughs> <laughs> well, and fundamentally speaking, Scantlin is a flawed songwriter. He is a flawed songwriter and a storyteller because of his world view. The point of view he has in the world is selfish and narcissistic. You can't write Holden Caulfield if you are Holden Caulfield. That's the point. J.D. Salinger, for all his quirkiness and weirdness, he's not Holden Caulfield. He's some other fucking... He's not Holden Caulfield. You can't be Holden Caulfield and write it. You have to be on some level, but you can't only be that to write that. Wes Scanlon's not doing any interesting character portrayals anyway. He accepts no accountability for his failures or his successes. It's just his ex's fault that everything bad happened to him and God's love that has done everything positive in his life. If you want selfish, so solipsistic, ignorant, fragile, violent white male bullshit that plays the righteous victim in every song, then boy, have I got a fucking band for you, man. Yeah, they're called Mud. Puddle of Mud. <laughs> oh, man. Well, what makes this song great? Yeah, what? Tell me. <sighs> So I'm going to come I come right out and just say this is going to be the worst technical analysis we ever do. There's nearly there's nothing going on in this song, like almost nothing. But what it does do, it does very right. Well, it's because the song, like you said, Fanny, there isn't much going on. How can you analyze something that barely exists? I'll tell you, by being full of shit like I am. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. Here's some actual quality insight. The song keeps things simple and anthemic. The song uh -huh. 
works the quiet, loud, quiet, loud gimmick that the, the Pixies sort of invented, according to Kurt Cobain, that Nirvana then became famous for. Jerry, don't say a damn fucking thing about it. <laughs> I, looked, I glared at you. <laughs> and I saw out of the corner of my eye. The song builds to that first chorus, which we don't get until the halfway point of the song. And it's like a pretty short song. So the chorus really appears as a focal point of the song, which is good because this is, this is a course about catharsis. It's a course about release as are most courses, but this one really is. This isn't a course we hear three or five times. Not at all. <laughs> of course we hear two times. There is a synergistic simplicity in this song, right? It's simple in every way. Nothing is overcomplicated here, and the song benefits from that. And all that simplicity works together. We only need two choruses in this song, and that's all we get. It feels like more because the final chorus is what takes us out. But even as it takes us out, it does not reprise in, in any way. It, it, we hear this chorus twice. <laughs> the song can be sung and played by anybody. That's another key factor that has to be accounted for and considered for its greatness and would also help us to, be, to become so ubiquitous. But yet, for what it is, it, it's still its own thing. It's so basic and run-of-the-mill, but ultimately unmistakable. You don't hear this song and think like, huh, what is this song again? Maybe you even don't know the band. You, you have heard this song and you know it. And that's it. I don't know. One of my favorite tabs that I, I found for this song, actually, uh, which I, I can't believe I even just said that, one of my favorite tabs for this song, simply lays out four chords and it includes the sentence. That's all it is. Good song. So, no Aaron Bridgman. This guy wrote the tab. No Aaron Bridgman. It's a great song. His email is leprosy underscore head at hotmail.com, by the way. And I'm not doxing him because he put this on, on ultimateguitar.com. But how about that? Leprosy underscore head at hotmail.com. At hotmail.com. What a character. Already, we, I could tell you guys would be friends. <laughs> But I just got to jump in and say how fucking terrible this video is for, for she hates me. You hate, the, you hate the video? I hate the video. Completely lacking in, in story. The acting is just like so terrible. Yeah. Cinematography, like bad wow. zooms. Literally wow. just like bad zooms, bad colors. Amazing. Holy shit. Does this just become a fucking movie review podcast? I mean, and well, wait until I tell you what I think about the soundtrack of this music video. Garbage as well. Yeah. <laughs> ah, Jeremy Cohen. Well, that's Jerry's personal analysis, unless he has anything extra to add in a bit. But let me get to let me get to my personal analysis. And Jerry, if there's anything else you want to add, then go for it. But no. so for <laughs> So for me, this song achieves what I believe is the coolest, the closest thing, but also the coolest thing. The coolest but, thing? But more specifically, it's the closest thing to an actual religious experience outside of sex and mind-expanding drugs that teach us just how interconnected all things are. No, this song, besides those things, is the closest thing that I believe you can get to a religious experience. Even if, even if you don't agree that this song does it, it's what this song does. And what this song does is it unites an entire room of people whenever it's played. And it unites people by doing two incredibly seemingly opposing things. One, this song unites people because it is simply and easily understood. 
that everyone absolutely understands the message of the song. There are no questions about the song's message. Everybody fucking gets it. But at the same time, number two, the song unites people because additionally to that, everyone who hears it has their own unique experiences to draw from, leading to a totally unique understanding of the song and therefore having a very personal relationship with it. And perhaps that's actually the essence of a universal statement. Perhaps something is universal when it is both understood exactly the same by everyone and yet experienced uniquely by everyone. This song is also compelling because it unifies and thrills people, not through a message like, don't worry, be happy, but through a profoundly negative realization and acceptance that someone out there hates you, someone whom you presumably loved and someone whom pre who presumably loved you. That's the actual poetry of the song. The implicit statement of the song is, well, this is a fact. <laughs> you know, the song's message is essentially about cathartic acceptance over your failure. This, Yes, this song can be rightly criticized for falling into the woman-bad trope that so many songs do. It has lyrics that definitely push into that. Lines that I will address. Lines like, she took all I ever had, no sign of guilt, not feeling bad, no. And, and, she tore my feelings like I had none. Yeah, that's all definitely just woman bad shit. But here's the thing. It's popular to call a guy like Wes Gatlin out for that. But logic has to cut both ways, man. You know? And if Puddle of Mud and She Hates Me is being put under the magnifying glass, then I have an entire Rolling Stones discography worth of misogyny and machismo to sell you, buddy. I got basically every 2000s emo song for you to look at, too. This is not... A song being able to be unfortunately boiled down to, huh, woman bad, this is not an isolated issue to Puddle of Mud. Yeah, there's terabytes and terabytes of this. <laughs> Absolutely. So, you know what, buddy, writing for some blog, if you're going to criticize Scantlin and Puddle of Mud for it, look at some of your favorite artists too there, pal. But you know what? You know what, folks at home? <clears throat> As a pansexual man... I can tell you, put any fucking, let's talk about what you can experience the song. Put any fucking pronoun in there and the song works because the implicit message of the song is, well, damn, I fucked up and this person hates me. Any explicit message is just throwing your arms up in the air, you know, in some devil may care style way and just saying, fuck it. They fucking hate me. Word up. They fucking hate me. Cool. And you know what? Take some owner. You gotta have fun with it. Take some ownership of it and just have fun with it when someone hates you, you know. And 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 I will say, the one actual redeeming value this song has, which if this were done and handled by better writers, so much more could have been done with this. But it has the lyric, "I tried too hard," and that's the lyric that comes before she tore my feelings like I had none. That lyric is compelling to me. Now, if we actually had good songwriters take the song and expound on that, that I tried too hard, and that is the genesis for the fallout, the end of our romance, which this song is now about, could have had a very compelling story, and I don't think the greatness of this song would be debatable. 
because again, then we would get an exploration of that self-awareness. Yes, it would still be a song with a chorus about she, they, he, what he hates me, whatever, and you saying that that other person fucking hates me and fuck all whatever, but there would still then be that introspection of I tried too hard. What did I do to lead to this? But of course that wouldn't happen because Wes Scantlin and Jimmy Allen wrote the song. Jimmy Allen, I don't know you. I have no beef, but I, I, you probably predominantly wrote this song, so I, I don't know, man. But yeah, that one line of I tried too hard always stuck with me and gave me gave this song for me a shred of depth to go along with the boneheaded anthemic catharsis that to me is also valuable and worth noting. And that's it. Jerry, do you have anything else you want to personally say about this band or are you... You tore my feelings like I had none, buddy. <laughs> well said. No, I mean, you know, though we don't usually like to use it as a justification for music being bad on this show, I think that we really did prove that sometimes just being a fucking terrible dude can lead you nowhere but writing fucking terrible songs. <laughs> That's true, man. Oh, gosh. Well, folks, on that note, it's time to bid you all a farewell and a good night. So, folks, stay strange, be kind, love yourselves, and as always, see you in hell, folks. Good night.